My beloved brethren and sisters, how blessed we are to meet together in peace in these comfortable and happy circumstances. As I have thought of this October General Conference and of the inspired talks we have heard and will hear, my mind has gone back to the events of this same Sunday of October 135 years ago when a similar meeting was convened here on Temple Square. We did not have this great tabernacle at that time. Our people then met in the old tabernacle which stood just to the south of us. It was Sunday, October 5, 1856. On Saturday the day before, a small group of missionaries returning from England arrived in the valley. They had been able to make relatively good time because their teams were strong and their wagons light. Franklin D. Richards was their leader. They immediately sought out President Brigham Young. They told him that hundreds of men, women, and children were scattered along the trail that led from the Missouri River to the Salt Lake Valley. Most of them were pulling handcarts, two companies of these with two smaller companies following behind with ox teams and wagons. The first group was probably at this time in the area of Scotts Bluff, more than 400 miles from their destination, with the others behind them. It was October, and they would be trapped in the snows of winter and perish unless help was sent. Brigham Young had known nothing of this. There was, of course, at that time no rapid means of communication, no radio, no telegraph, no fast mail. He was then 55 years of age. The next morning, the Sabbath, he stood before the people in the tabernacle and said, I will now give this people the subject and the text for the elders who may speak. It is this. On the fifth day of October, 1856, many of our brethren and sisters are on the plains with handcarts, and probably many are now 700 miles from this place, and they must be brought here. We must send assistance to them. The text will be to get them here. That is my religion. That is the dictation of the Holy Ghost that I possess. It is to save the people. I shall call upon the bishops this day. I shall not wait until tomorrow, nor until the next day, for sixty good mule teams and twelve or fifteen wagons. I do not want to send oxen. I want good horses and mules. They are in this territory, and we must have them. Also twelve tons of flour and forty good teamsters, besides those that drive the teams. I will tell you that all that your faith Religion and profession of religion will never save one soul of you in the celestial kingdom of our God unless you carry out just such principles as I am now teaching you. Go and bring in these people now on the plains. The next morning, anvils were ringing in the blacksmith shops as horses were shod and wagons were repaired and loaded. The following morning, Tuesday, October 7th, 16 good four-mule teams and 27 hardy young men headed eastward with the first installment of provisions. 
The gathering of more to follow was pushed vigorously. By the end of October, 250 teams were on the road to give relief. There have been many eloquent sermons preached from the pulpits on Temple Square, but none more eloquent than those spoken in that October conference of 135 years ago. Now let me leave that for a moment and pick up the story from another position. A few weeks ago, it was my privilege to dedicate a monument to the memory of Ellen Pussell Unthank. It stands on the campus of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. It is a bronze figure, beautiful and engaging. It is of a little nine-year-old girl. Her hair is blowing back in the wind, a smile on her face, standing with one foot tiptoe, eager looking for, eagerly looking forward. Helen Pussell, as she was named, was born in a beautiful area of England where the hills are soft and rolling and the grass is forever green. Her parents, Margaret and William Pussell, were converts to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Since the time of their baptism in 1837 until the spring of 1856, they had scrimped and saved to go to the Zion of their people in the valleys of the Rocky Mountains of America. Now that was possible if they were willing to pull a handcart a thousand miles across a wilderness. They accepted that challenge, as did hundreds of converts similarly situated. Margaret and William took with them their two daughters, Maggie, 14, and Ellen, 9. They said goodbye to loved ones they would never again see in mortality. Near the end of May, they set sail from Liverpool with 852 of their convert associates. My wife's grandmother, 13-year-old Mary Goble, was a part of that company, and I like to think played with those little girls aboard ship. After <coughs> six weeks at sea, they landed at Boston and took the steam train to Iowa City. They had expected their handcarts and wagons would be ready. They were not. There was a serious and disastrous delay. It was not until late in July that they began the long march, first to winter quarters on the Missouri and from there to the Rocky Mountains. The Pucells were assigned to the Martin Handcart Company. The Goble family, my wife's forebears, became a part of the Clough Wagon Company, which followed the handcarts to give help if needed. With high expectation, they began their journey. Through sunlight and storm, through dust and mud, they trudged beside the Platte River through all of the month of September and most of October. On October 19th, they reached the last crossing of the Platte, a little west of the present city of Casper, Wyoming. The river was wide, the current strong and chunks of ice were floating in the water. They were now traveling without sufficient food. Bravely they waded through the icy stream. A terrible storm arose with fierce winds, bringing drifting sand, hail, and snow. When they climbed the far bank of the river, their wet clothing froze to their bodies. <coughs> Excuse me. 
exhausted, freezing, and without strength to go on. Some quietly sat down, and while they sat, they died. Ellen's mother, Margaret, became sick. Her husband lifted her onto the cart. They were now climbing an elevation toward the Continental Divide, and it was uphill all the way. Can you see this family in your imagination? The mother too sick and weak to walk, the father thin and emaciated, struggling to pull the cart as the two little girls push from behind with swirling cold winds about them. And around them are hundreds of others similarly struggling. They came to a stream of freezing water. The father, while crossing, slipped on a rock and fell. Struggling to his feet, he reached the shore, wet and chilled. Some time later, he sat down to rest. He quietly died, his senses numb by the cold. His wife died five days later. I do not know. how or where their frozen bodies were buried in that desolate white wilderness. I do know that the ground was frozen and that the snow was piled in drifts and that the two little girls were now orphans. Between 135 and 150 of the Martin Company alone perished along that trail of suffering and death. It was in these desperate and terrible circumstances, hungry, exhausted, their clothes thin and ragged, that they were found by the rescue party. As the rescuers appeared on the western horizon, breaking the trail through the snow, they seemed as angels of mercy, and indeed they were. The beleaguered emigrants shouted for joy, some of them, Others, too weak to shout, simply wept and wept and wept. (coughs) There was now food to eat and some warmer clothing, but the suffering was not over, nor would it ever end in mortality. Limbs had been frozen and the gangrenous flesh sloughed off in the bones. The carts were abandoned and the survivors were crowded into the wagons of the rescuers. The long, rough journey of 300, 400, even 500 miles between them and this valley was especially slow and tedious because of the storms. On November 30th, 104 wagons loaded with suffering human cargo came into the Salt Valley. Word of their expected arrival had preceded them. It was Sunday, and again the saints were gathered in the tabernacle. Brigham Young stood before the congregation and said, As soon as this meeting is dismissed, I want the brethren and sisters to repair to their homes. The afternoon meeting will be omitted, for I wish the sisters to prepare to give those who have just arrived a mouthful of something to eat and to wash them and nurse them. Some of you will find their feet frozen to the ankles, some are frozen to their knees, and some have their hands frosted. We want you to receive them as your own children and to have the same feeling for them. The two orphan girls, Maggie and Ellen, were among those with frozen limbs. Ellen's were the most serious. 
the doctor in the valley doing the best he could amputated her legs just below the knees. The surgical tools were crude. There was no anesthesia. The stumps never healed. She grew to womanhood, married William Unthank and born, reared an honorable family of six children. Moving about on those stumps, she served her family, her neighbors, and the Church with faith and good cheer and without complaint, though she was never without pain. Her posterity are numerous, and among them are educated and capable men and women who love the Lord whom she loved and who love the cause for which she suffered. Years later, a group in Cedar City were talking about her and others who were in those ill-fated companies. Members of the group spoke critically of the Church and its leaders because the company of converts had been permitted to start so late in the season. I now quote from a manuscript which I have. One old man in the corner sat silent and listened as long as he could stand it. Then he arose and said things that no person who heard will ever forget. His face was white with emotion, yet he spoke calmly, deliberately, but with great earnestness and sincerity. He said in substance, I ask you to stop this criticism. You are discussing a matter you know nothing about. Cold historic facts mean nothing here, for they give no proper interpretation of the questions involved. A mistake to send the handcart company out so late in the season? Yes, but I was in that company, and my wife was in it, and Sister Nellie Unthank, whom you have cited, was there, there too. We suffered beyond anything you can imagine, and many died of exposure and starvation. But did you ever hear a survivor of that company utter a word of criticism? Not one of that company ever apostatized or left the Church, because every one of us came, to, came through with the absolute knowledge that God lives for we became acquainted with him in our extremities. That speaker was Francis Webster, who was 26 years of age, when with his wife and infant child he went through that experience. He became a leader in the Church and a leader in the communities of southern Utah. Now, my brothers and sisters, I have spent a long time telling that story, perhaps too long. This is October of 1991, and that episode of 135 years ago is behind us. But I have told it because it is true, and because the spirit of that saga is as contemporary as is this morning. I wish to remind everyone within my hearing that the comforts we have, the peace we have, and most importantly, the faith and knowledge of the things of God that we have, <coughs> were bought with a terrible price by those who have gone before us. Sacrifice has always been a part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The crowning element of our faith is our conviction of our living God, the Father of us all, and of His beloved Son, the Redeemer of the world. It is because of our Redeemer's life and sacrifice 
that we are here. It is because of His sacrificial atonement that we and all of the sons and daughters of God will partake of the salvation of the Lord. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. It is because of the sacrificial redemption wrought by the Savior of the world that the great plan of the eternal gospel is made available to us under which those who die in the Lord shall not taste of death but shall have the opportunity of going on to a celestial and eternal glory. In our own helplessness, He becomes our rescuer, saving us from damnation and bringing us to eternal life. In times of despair, in seasons of loneliness and fear, He is there on the horizon to bring succor and comfort and assurance and faith. He is our King, our Savior, our Deliverer, our Lord, and our God. Those on the high, cold plains of Wyoming came to know Him in their extremity, as perhaps few come to know Him. But to every troubled soul, every man or woman in need, to those everywhere who are pulling heavy burdens through the bitter storms of life, He has said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now I am grateful that today none of our people are stranded on the Wyoming highlands, but I know that all about us there are many who are in need of help and who are deserving of rescue. Our mission in life as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ must be a mission of saving. There are the homeless, the hungry, the destitute. Their condition is obvious. We have done much. We can do more to help those who live on the edge of survival. We can reach out to strengthen those who wallow in the mire of pornography, gross immorality, and drugs. Many have become so addicted that they have lost power to control their own destinies. They are miserable and broken. They can be salvaged and saved. There are wives who are abandoned and children who weep in homes where there is abuse. There are fathers who can be rescued from evil and corrosive practices that destroy and bring only heartbreak. It is not with those on the high plains of Wyoming that we need to be concerned today. It is with many immediately around us, in our families, in our wards and stakes, in our neighborhoods and communities. And the Lord called His people Zion, because they were of one heart and one mind, and dwelt in righteousness, and there was no poor among them. If we are to build that Zion, of which the prophets have spoken, and of which the Lord has given mighty promise, we must set aside our consuming selfishness. We must rise above our love for comfort and ease, and in the very process of effort and struggle, even in our extremity, we shall become better acquainted with our God. Let us never forget that we have a marvelous heritage 
received from great and courageous people who endured unimaginable suffering and demonstrated unbelievable courage for the cause they loved. You and I know what we should do. God help us to do it when it needs to be done. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Lehi and his family, after wandering in the wilderness for eight years, they came to a land they called Bountiful because it was a place of much fruit and wild honey. They came to a great sea and they rejoiced unto the Lord because he had preserved them. After they had been in the land Bountiful for a space of many days, the Lord spoke to Nephi and said, Arise and get thee unto the mountain. Nephi obeyed the Lord, and he went into the mountain and prayed. The Lord commanded Nephi, Thou shalt construct a ship after the manner which I shall show thee, that I may carry thy people across these waters. Then Nephi asked the Lord, Whither shall I go to, that I may find ore? to Molten, that I may make tools to construct the ship after the manner which thou hast shown me. The Lord instructed Nephi that he could find ore, where he could find ore. But then Nephi was on his own. In Nephi 1, 1 Nephi chapter 17 we read, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did make a bellows wherewith to blow the fire of the skins of beasts. And after I had made a bellows that I might have herewith to blow, I did smite two stones together that I may make fire. And it came to pass that I did make tools of the ore, which I did molten out of the rock. This is one of the most interesting stories we have in the scriptures because it tells of an instance where the Lord provided help but then stepped aside to allow one of his sons to exercise his own initiative. I have sometimes wondered what would have happened if Nephi had asked the Lord for tools instead of a place to find the ore to make the tools. I doubt the Lord would have honored Nephi's request. You see, the Lord knew that Nephi could make the tools, and it is seldom the Lord will do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. The Lord does help when we go to Him in times of need, especially when we are committed to His work and respond to His will. But the Lord only helps those who are willing to help themselves. He expects His children to be self-reliant to the degree that they can be. Brigham Young instructed the saints, Instead of searching after what the Lord is going to do for us, let us inquire what we can do for ourselves. Independence and self-reliance are critical to our spiritual and temporal growth. Whenever we get into situations which threaten our self-reliance, we will find our freedoms threatened as well. If we increase our dependence on anything or anyone, Except the Lord, we will find an immediate decrease in our freedom to act.
as President Heber J. Grant declared, nothing destroys the individuality of a man, a woman, or a child so much as failure to be self-reliant. Never before in my life has the doctrine of self-reliance been more needed to be preached and encouraged for the benefit of the saints. We live in a time of rapid change. Governments are rising and falling. Industries are blooming and then all too soon become obsolete. New discoveries in science are soon overshadowed by new findings. Unless we are continuously expanding our understanding and vision, we too will become out of date. Research tells us that individuals entering the labor market today will be forced to find three to five different careers pass during their productive lives. What must we do to become more self-reliant? My parents established a family tradition in our home, which was fun for me in the early years and has become even more meaningful as I reflect back on it as years have passed. On the first birthday of each child of the family, we would gather into the living room. In the center of the living room floor, our parents would place articles for the one-year-old child to select. The selection to be made might indicate an interest the child would pursue in life. The articles were the Bible, a child's bottle filled with milk, a toy, and a savings bank filled with coins. The child was placed on one side of the room and the family on the other side. The family members would encourage the child to crawl towards the objects and make a selection. This was all in fun, of course. I was told that I selected the bank and went into finance as my profession. I watched my brother Ted select the scriptures. He pursued law as his chosen profession and over the years has relied on the scriptures as his basis of judgment. My youngest brother Bob was the well-rounded member of the family. He crawled over, sat down on the Bible, put the bottle in his mouth, and then held one to- the toy in one hand and the bank in the other. <laughs> now I propose to you that this entertaining family activity we can find some of the most fundamental principles of self-reliance. First, the scriptures represent our need for spiritual nourishment. In the scriptures, the Lord reveals His will to His children. From the very beginning of time, He has instructed His prophets to record His commandments with them for the benefit of His children. The Holy Scriptures declare eternal values. They are the firm foundation on which we can build a successful mortal experience. We become more self-reliant when we study the Holy Scriptures, which teach the principles that provide a divine center to our lives here in mortality. We should be comforted with the fact that we have the best text text which has ever been written or ever will be written as our guide. We could turn to 2 Kings, the fifth chapter, and learn about obedience. We can study the life of Job and learn integrity. King Benjamin's address in Mosiah 2 teaches industry. The life of Joseph, as contained in Genesis 39, tells us what we should do when our standard of morality is being tested. These are just a few examples of 
the lessons we can learn from the Holy Scriptures. They are lessons which have stood the test of time. Our challenge is to make them come alive in the hearts and minds of our families as we assume the responsibility to teach them. Second, the bottle filled with milk symbolizes the need of our physical bodies for nourishment. Our welfare services program has taught us by using the spokes of a wheel to define the essential ingredients or elements in self-reliance. The elements contained in the wheel are education, physical health, employment, home storage, resource management, and social, emotional, and spiritual strength. This summer, my wife and I had the opportunity to visit an 80-year-old man who certainly demonstrated each of these elements in his life. He was born in a small Idaho town and worked long hours on the farm to finance his education. He spent his professional life teaching English and Spanish in a small high school. To set aside funds for missions and the education of his large family, he grew strawberry and raspberry crops to be picked and sold to the local markets. This labor occupied his summers. Because these fruits were labor-intensive, few people had the ambition to grow them. They were much-wanted crops. The demand was always there for as many berries as he could produce. He was never satisfied with the productivity of his crops, so he studied new varieties in an attempt to make, find the best producers. In his backyard, literally, it was an experiment farm for testing the varieties of bushes which produced the sweetest and most abundant fruit for his particular climate. He studied yields that increased his productivity. The labor kept him in good physical health. The fields of berries furnished automatic employment for his children each summer. The berries delivered to the market could not only be exchanged for cash, but also for commodities to be used in their home storage. He managed his resources to build a beautiful home and supplied the needs for his family. This man loved to watch the Lord's system of multiplying and replenishing the earth, which gave him social, emotional, and spiritual strength. Now retired from active teaching, he continues to grow his berries, not for profit, but for satisfaction. Six mornings each week during the berry harvest season, you will see him leading a parade of 10 to 12 cars out of the city towards his berry patch. Families come to add to their home storage by picking the berries. I asked him the price per case if we supplied our own labor. He answered, I don't know. My pay is seeing the look on the people's faces as they leave the fields holding the fruits of their labors in their arms. I am convinced there are thousands of ways for families to build self-reliance by working together in productive pursuits. Perhaps a good family home evening lesson could be on producing some ideas to help make our families more temporally self-sufficient. Third, the toy I mentioned earlier, earlier represents the acquisition of things of the world. We are bombarded today with powerful media to acquire now and pay later in what are purported to be painless monthly installments. 
We live in an impatient world where everyone wants everything now. The acquisition of worldly goods seems to foster an appetite for more rather than any kind of lasting satisfaction. Using our resources and worldly goods wisely and extending their life will help us become more self-reliant. I watched a young family move this summer, and I was intrigued by the labels on the boxes coming out of the storage room. They read, Girls' clothing, two years old. Clothing, girls, three years old. And so on up. Clearly, this family had a well-conceived plan to maximize the usage of purchased items of clothing. We live in a world blessed with so much abundance. Let us be certain that our resources with which we are blessed are never wasted. Finally, the fourth item, the bank. It is a symbol of our financial well-being. I learned a great lesson early in my business career. My boss called me into his office. I could tell he had something on his mind. He said, give me a definition of interest. Of course, I reached back in my training and gave him a definition I had learned in a textbook. He said, no, 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 that's not the one I want. You listen and remember this one. Them's that understands it earns it. Them's that don't pays it. Now it doesn't take a genius to understand that before you can collect interest, you must first have some savings. Having a savings while continuing to increase one's standard of living requires one simple practice and then religiously applying it. After paying your tithing of 10% to the Lord, you pay yourself a predetermined amount directly into savings. That leaves you a balance of your income to budget for taxes, food, clothing, shelter, transportation, and etc. It is amazing to me that so many people work all their lives for the grocer, the landlord, the power company, the automobile salesman, and the bank, and yet think so little of their own efforts that they never pay themselves nothing. Be prudent, wise, and conservative in your investment programs. It is by consistently and regularly adding to your investments that you will build your emergency and retirement savings. This will add to your progress in becoming self-reliant. The principle of self-reliance is spiritual as well as temporal. It is not a doomsday program. It is something to be practiced each and every day of our lives. May we continue to hold fast to the eternal truths of self-reliance is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. During the last two years, we've seen many significant international political events followed by dramatic consequences and changes for the world and also for the Church. Perhaps not as visible, but certainly as tangible, we're also witnessing events that profoundly affect the quality of individual lives and families, followed by even more far-reaching consequences and changes, specifically in relation to God, churches, and religious behavior. These changes have caused a significant shift in traditional or religious values toward world practices, and this is well described in one verse of modern revelation. They seek not the Lord to establish his righteousness, but every man walketh in his own way, 
and after the image of his own God, whose image is in the likeness of the world. If we fail to recognize the personal spiritual challenge of political and economical changes and constant new threats to the moral and spiritual stability of individuals and families, we will fail to recognize the needs and requirements to adapt to these new conditions by finding within ourselves a firm and true foundation that will determine a firm and true behavior. What is the true foundation that should motivate us to act accordingly? The Hebrew C. Kimball once said, Let me say to you that many of you will see the time when you will have all the trouble, trial, and persecution that you can stand and plenty of opportunities to show that you are true to God and His work. This Church has before it many close places through which it will have to pass before the work of God is crowned with victory. The time will come when no man nor woman will be able to endure unborrowed light. Each will have to be guided by the light within himself. If you do not have it, how can you stand? What is meant by the light within himself? That is a testimony, the true foundation that should determine true behavior. President Harabee Lee said, The real strength of the Church is to be measured by the individual testimonies, to be found in the total membership of the Church. Based on this quote, we might also say that the real strength of an individual is to be found in his testimony and in living it. If the measure of strength and the stability or true foundation of an individual and his subsequent conduct lies in a testimony, and we do not fully recognize its importance or do not understand what it really means, or cannot or will not bear it or share it with others, and if we cannot teach it or explain it to others, maybe we ought to explore the deep spiritual meaning of it and the blessing of obtaining, maintaining, and sharing a personal individual testimony. Early in the scriptures, the sacredness of the word testimony is illustrated when Adam was told that all things are created and made to bear record of me. It was vital for Adam to have a knowledge of our father and his son, and that has not changed in our time and will never change. This applies as well to the principle of gaining a testimony and knowing what it is. It is knowing by the power of the Holy Ghost that God lives and is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. A testimony is not only a witness that Jesus is the Christ, but also a statement or affirmation of the fact that Joseph Smith saw the Father and the Son, a conviction that the Book of Mormon has a divine origin and is another testament of Jesus Christ and a knowledge that the Church of Jesus Christ, with its gospel and holy priesthood, were in truth and fact restored. Joseph Felix Smith defined it this way, A testimony of the gospel is a convincing knowledge given by revelation to the individual who humbly seeks the truth. What are the essential steps to obtain a testimony? First, to humbly seek the truth, to have a desire to know by exercising belief or faith. When we obtain any blessing from God, such as an answer to prayer or a convincing knowledge, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Here, then, are the required standards of the law. Ask in the name of Christ, 
and exercise faith in Him and have a sincere heart. Humbly seek the truth, be receptive, discard preconceived religious concepts, and cleanse yourself from the sins of the world. You must adhere to the rules, tune in correctly to receive the proper signal, and once in harmony with the Holy Ghost, you may know the truth of all things. This represents a spiritual gift available from God, not to be denied, but to profit us. It is permanently available, never to be taken away, except by our unbelief or unwillingness to humbly seek the truth. The second step is to know by revelation where spirit speaks to spirit. It is one thing to be able to say, I believe, I think, I hope that the gospel is true. But it requires personal revelation and personal acknowledgement and recognition to declare, I know that the Church is true. Alma gives us a perfect example of this convincing knowledge that he received by revelation. In four verses, we learn about this light within himself. First, the assurance of his testimony. Behold, I testify unto you that I do know that these things whereof I have spoken are true. Second, the source of his testimony. They are made known unto me by the Holy Spirit of God. Third, the process of gaining his testimony. I have fasted and prayed. Fourth, the evidence of his testimony. The Lord God hath made them manifest unto me by his Holy Spirit, and this is the spirit of revelation which is in me. Fifth, the origin of his testimony. The words which have been spoken by our fathers are true. Sixth, the power of his testimony. I say unto you that I know of myself that Jesus Christ shall come. This convincing knowledge of our testimony would not be complete without also accepting the responsibility of carrying such a testimony. And Alma further stated, I am called to preach, to cry unto them that they must repent and be born again. Let us now examine the keys of the spirit of revelation. Key number one is to know for yourself. Do not be dependent on someone else. Key number two is to know by the power of the Holy Ghost. Do not look at reason, logic, or the philosophies of men and theories of the world. Key number three is to know by searching the scriptures and the revelations given and published in our days by the prophets, the first presidency in the twelfth. Do not listen to apostate and authorized voices or speculation. Key number four is to know by asking your Heavenly Father in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Do not turn to public discussions and forums. The purpose of having and using certain keys is always very simple, to open the right door with a particular key. The purpose of these spiritual keys is to open spiritual doors one by one, to come to a plain testimony as described by the prophets. When children first start to read, they look at the letters and ask what they are. After a time, they can recognize the letters by their names and put them together to form a word. And then a miracle happens. They can read a word, then a sentence, then a book. The steps of gaining a testimony follow the same pattern. We want to know. We begin with what we know. And when we know, we further enrich our knowledge by sharing and practicing what we know. Once a testimony is in place, just like a fire that needs fuel and oxygen to burn, it needs to be fed and tended or it will burn out and die. 
A dying testimony corresponds, in fact, to a forthcoming denial of Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Moroni taught, For the right way is to believe in Christ and deny Him not. For by denying Him ye also deny the prophets and the law. Unfortunately, there are those who gain testimonies and then deny them and lose them. How does this happen? If you follow the steps to obtain a testimony, do exactly the opposite to deny it or lose it. Do not pray. The door to revelation will be closed. Do not be humble, but listen to your own superior voice. Do not participate in the ordinances of the gospel, but follow the practices of the world. Do not follow church leaders, but be critical of them. Do not listen to prophets and follow their counsel, but interpret their declarations according to your own desires. Do not obey the commandments, but live according to your own appetites and desires. These are only a few of the most evident problems leading to a loss of testimony. As ashes represent the evidence of a dying fire, the demise of a testimony is characterized by spiritual ashes, such as a lack of gospel appetite, charity, and purpose, as well as having feelings of apathy, bitterness, and emptiness. Spiritual ashes might be all that are left of what was once a burning, loving, meaningful, and uplifting testimony. To maintain and strengthen the testimony, prophets have always reminded us to bear it and share it. President Kimball stated, To hold his testimony, one must bear it often and live worthy of it. Make it known after you know. Make its power evident after you know and live accordingly after you know. To have a testimony and to share it provides a firm foundation for us to stand on and a way to control our lives in this constantly changing world. When Moses received the tables upon which the words of the covenant were written, they were called the tables of testimony and were to remain in the ark as a reminder of the covenant between the Lord and His children. Moses and his people had quite a convincing knowledge. When Joseph Smith received his vision, he also knew. It was an indelible testimony. In his own words, for I had seen a vision, I knew it. And I knew that God knew it, and I could not deny it. Neither dared I do it. These testimonies were true foundations to be built upon and followed by obedience and good works. What about us? Are we any different when we have received a testimony of the covenant? Perhaps we now begin to perceive and understand the importance of a testimony and the strength that can be derived from it with its mortal and eternal consequences. It is definitely a most precious possession, something to be desired now and forever because it determines our life here and eternal life hereafter. President Benson, our living prophet, stated, A testimony is one of the few possessions we may take with us when we leave this life. A testimony of Jesus means that you accept the divine mission of Jesus Christ, embrace His gospel, and do His works. It means you accept the prophetic mission of Joseph Smith and his successors. A living prophet has spoken. It is now time for us to stand and be true to our testimonies. May I add my testimony to yours and bear my solemn witness, search in all humility, and acquired by the power of the Holy Ghost, that I know personally that God lives 
that Jesus is the Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, that this church is true and is led by a living prophet, President Ezra Benson. This I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In June of this year, Sister Nelson and I had the great privilege of accompanying the Mormon Tabernacle Choir on its historic concert tour in Europe. We are grateful to the First Presidency for that assignment. Much has been written regarding the success of the choir and of its favorable influence that will yet continue. Members and friends of the Church worldwide join with me in expressing appreciation to the officers, staff, directors, accompanists, and to all vocalists for their wonderful service. I won't mention anyone by name. I will simply refer to them all as members of the choir. I'll not comment as a music critic would. While musical experts of the world focus on what choir members can do, I would like to focus on what choir members can be. This I do because I witnessed in choir members great examples that can inspire and improve the lives of each of you who honestly strives to emulate the Lord who said, I am the light. I have set an example for you. So we should strive to learn from his example and from the good example of those who love and follow him. Members of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir are not superhuman. They are ordinary people with ordinary frailties. But therein lies the power of their example. They believe this promise from the Lord. Because thou hast seen thy weakness, thou shalt be made strong. Before attending their first rehearsal, choir members brought with them not only musical education and talent, but qualities of personal righteousness. Before singing to their first audience, they were blessed by another promise from our Savior, Ye may show forth good examples unto them in me and I will make an instrument of thee in my hands unto the salvation of many souls. Have you not learned that strength comes to an ordinary soul when given an extraordinary calling? The choir has. Indeed, each member seemed to be imbued with a real sense of mission, striving for those ten traits that missionaries are expected to possess and practice. Faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, diligence. Those are attributes the Lord deserves from His disciples. Because each of us is to be an example of the believers, I would like to address those ten topics. As members of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir were our examples in many memorable ways. Their great faith was strengthened by the faith of our leaders. I pay tribute to the First Presidency and to leaders of the choir who had the foresight to plan as they did and when they did. How bold and inspired they were to conceive this tour many months, even years, before Europe's unwelcoming walls began to crumble. The Brethren had the faith to believe that the choir could sing in cities such as Warsaw, Budapest, Prague, Leningrad, and Moscow, 
long before such dreams seem plausible. Then in January 1991, hopeful plans were seriously threatened when war erupted in the Persian Gulf. Even then, our leaders decided against canceling the tour. They knew of its potential for good and had faith that countless obstacles could be overcome. Often they prayed that the choir's tour might be successfully accomplished. Those prayers were answered. Think of the timing. In 1,000 years of Russia's existence, its first popular national election ever to be held occurred in June 1991. Six days later, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir performed in Moscow. That very night, after the strains of Come, Come, Ye Saints had resounded from its Bolshoi Theater, the Vice President of the Republic announced that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints had been granted recognition in the Republic of Russia. On the eve of a supreme crisis that was yet ahead, Russian people heard songs of faith, courage, hope, and love. That faith of our Church leaders filled the hearts of members, families, and friends of the choir as well. Real were the risks of separation of husbands and wives, of parents and children. Hundreds of dependents were temporarily deprived of moms or dads for almost a month. Thanks be to all who cared for those families in faith. If each of us could muster that same faith in the service we are called to render, we would also be blessed. Virtue radiated from the choir. Each member seemed to exemplify President Brigham Young's counsel, learn the will of God, keep His commandments, and do His will, and you will be a virtuous person. They applied the word of God, not only in song but in sermons of example. After one concert, I was greeted by an individual who expressed gratitude in an unusual way. He said, I'm thankful for the choir's message. I asked, What message did you receive? His answer, The choir was trying to teach me a better way to live. That comment seemed profound to me. What inspired him to feel such a force for good? Was it complicated classical music or the excellence of its rendition? I doubt it. I believe it was more likely communication by the Spirit, which allowed both the giver and receiver to be edified. And very possibly the spirit of the listener was moved most by melodies soft and simple, sung with sweet sincerity. When the choir sang the Lord's Prayer, for example, audiences were hushed and attentive. They seemed to understand without fully knowing either the language or the history of the song. The virtue of choir members brought blessings to their own lives. When the tour was completed and each was safely home, I thought of this promise from the Lord. If thou art faithful and walk in the paths of virtue before me, I will preserve thy life. That same promise applies to me and to you. Knowledge is essential to competent service for any missionary. So it was with members of the choir in this tour to eight nations. To communicate more effectively, the choir sang in ten languages. 
In these times of changing political views, much study was also required to determine which songs should be sung and which should not be sung. But their quest for knowledge did not begin or end with music. They eagerly studied the culture, history, and ways of the people they had come to serve. On a moment's notice, their knowledge of the gospel had to be retrieved when questioned by the media or interested individuals. In these lands that have known so much of hardship and strife, choir members echoed the scriptural hope that perhaps they might bring others to the knowledge of the Lord their God, that they might also be brought to rejoice in the Lord their God, that they might become friendly to one another, that there should be no more contentions in all the land. Members of the choir knew that after a people had been once enlightened by the Spirit of God and have had great knowledge of things pertaining to righteousness, lives would never again be the same. Just think of the good you can do. If you accept a difficult challenge and pursue knowledge, then use it to bless others, as did the choir. To knowledge, the Apostle Peter wrote, add temperance. Temperance suggests sobriety and self-restraint in action. It reminds one of covenants made. Members of the choir were always temperate and well-disciplined, not from without, but from within. Completely obedient to the word of wisdom, they were blessed with health and strength. Keeping a schedule that left little time for leisure, their grueling pace allowed them to perform for audiences that otherwise might have been excluded. Repeatedly, scriptures teach that we be temperate in all things. Temperance can protect each of us from the aftermath of excess. Patience is one of the most practiced attributes of choir members. Checking into a hotel with a group of 500 travelers and more than a thousand pieces of luggage provided practice in patience nearly every day. One dear sister never did receive her baggage. Her patience flowered into ingenuity as she attempted to feel fresh with the same clothing day after day. Patience is a divine attribute. The Book of Mormon invites us to come to a knowledge of the goodness of God and His matchless power and His wisdom and His patience and His long-suffering toward the children of men. Although choir members are not perfect, each one seemed to epitomize scriptural counsel to continue in patience until ye are perfected. If they can do it, each of us can also develop that precious talent of patience. Brotherly kindness was a hallmark of the tour. Never did I hear a disparaging remark. Especially did I watch those heroic members of the choir with serious physical disabilities. Some have severe visual handicaps and can read music only with their fingers. Others walk solely with the aid of crutches or appliances. Their great courage was superbly matched by the courtesy of companions who gave much that all might triumph together. Indeed, they typified this scriptural analogy. The whole body, fitly joined together according to the effectual working of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. 
Brotherly kindness overcomes the rudeness of selfish intent. Each of us can develop brotherly kindness at home, at school, at work, or at play. The Book of Mormon defines charity as the pure love of Christ. It further teaches that the Lord God hath given a commandment that all men should have charity, which charity is love. I saw choir members extend that love to countless souls. For those in need, members quietly contributed money, food, and goods. They shared freely of their precious time and talent without any thought of personal acclaim or recompense. Truly, truly charity never faileth any of us. The choir's humility seemed to increase throughout their journey. Though their mounting successes gave them much to be proud of, members grew into this scriptural pattern. They did fast and pray oft and did wax stronger and stronger in their humility and firmer and firmer in the faith of Christ unto the filling their souls with joy and consolation, yea, even to the purifying and the sanctification of their hearts. Choir members became subject one to another and imparted the word of God one with another as true disciples do. They were humble and teachable as submissive saints should be. Their examples of humility should ennoble our souls. Diligence was demonstrated by all members of the choir, but extraordinarily so by one precious mother whom I shall never forget. Just five days after the choir had left America, I was asked to inform her that her beautiful 37-year-old daughter had died after a long illness. The leaders of this sorrowing mother offered means for her to return home from Europe. She declined the offer. She and her family had already anticipated this possibility. Their decision had been made. It was not to be interpreted as a pattern for anyone else to follow, but for her alone. Her children and grandchildren had pleaded that she remain on assignment. So she continued in all diligence, never missing a single concert. She nobly fulfilled this scriptural counsel. Therefore, be diligent in whatsoever difficult circumstances you may be. Her example can bless each of you, just as it did her family and me. Godliness is an attribute that seems as difficult to define as it is to attain. Scriptures refer to the mystery of godliness. Because it is so special, I have chosen to speak of it last. Simon Peter counseled us to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. The power of godliness is manifest in the ordinances of the priesthood. Godliness is not a product of perfection. It comes of concentration and consecration. Godliness characterizes each of you who truly loves the Lord. You are constantly mindful of the Savior's atonement and rejoice in His unconditional love. Meanwhile, you vanquish personal pride and vain ambition. You consider your accomplishments important only if they help establish the kingdom of God on earth.
The Mormon Tabernacle Choir's songs help to convey their uncommon spirit of godliness. From their hearts, the choir sang one number which bore testimony of love so amazing, so divine. Tears moistened the faces of more than a few as they expressed personal feelings of conversion and commitment to godliness. This song that the choir will soon sing includes these verses penned by Isaac Watts. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Such are lessons taught by those who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. Unitedly, members of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir testify of the living Lord and of His Church restored in these latter days, as do I. May God bless us to lift our lives by their example. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.